I'm Mark Lynch at the George Washington University and the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the Maps Conversations, our podcast in which we chat with leading scholars in the field about their research, about current events, or whatever else is on their mind. Uh, with me today is Hisham Salam. He's a research associate at the Center for Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at Stanford University, and uh, a, a frequent and prolific uh, author on Egyptian politics. Uh, Hisham, welcome to uh, George Washington University. Uh, thank you, Mark, and thank you very much for this generous introduction. So, Hisham, you've been, you wrote an article uh, a while back about uh, kind of the, the, the dueling narratives about the Egyptian revolution of 2011, the different understandings that political actors, historians, political scientists had developed about those events. And I thought you did a really good job of showing kind of the, the way that knowledge was being constructed and the way that people were understanding very recent history um, in ways that maybe serve their political interests. And uh, so I thought we might start just by talking about that. You know, you wrote that article a few years ago, a couple of years have passed since then. H- how would you assess that project of, uh, of knowledge construction, of narrative, of history, uh, in light of where Egypt is today? Well, obviously, Mark, I mean, it, any, uh, in any situation, or at least more generally in contemporary politics, the way that we narrate history, uh, be it more recent history or or, uh, or events that have happened uh, decades uh, or centuries ago, uh, often has a lot to do with the contemporary moment, and actually often has more to do with the contemporary moment than it has to do with these events. And this is uh, the spirit in which that piece uh, was written, even though it was talking about a history that was uh, still being written, but um, the way uh, that conflicts between uh, emergent narratives uh, about the January 25th revolution were shaping up had uh, reflected uh, a great deal about the politics that was happening. For example, after day one, after the fall of Hosni Barak, there was this, uh, uh, there was this narrative that uh, the Supreme Council of the, the Armed Forces was trying to advance that uh, mission has been accomplished. The revolution accomplished what it's uh, what it sought to do. Uh, the uprising uh, it presented it as an uprising that was aimed at getting rid of Hosni Mubarak and uh, sort of subverting that Mashru'at Tawrith or the uh, the uh, the project or, or the uh, apparent project uh, that Hosni Mubarak had to pass on power to his son, uh, youngest son Gamad. Uh, and uh, so that narrative itself was ruling out in the process and perhaps quite deliberately ruling out other interpretations of the revolution uh, that were uh, aimed at uh, advancing the vision that this revolution wasn't just about changing political leadership, getting rid of Mubarak, but was actually seeking uh, to advance far-reaching uh, reforms inside of the state. and. Um, I would say that the dimensions of that conflict were, you know, multidimensional. It wasn't just a, a conflict between or competing narratives between uh, the Supreme Council on the Armed Forces and, uh, uh, you know, the opposition. I think the uh, this was um, this w- th- there were competing narratives within I think Egypt's civilian political community at the time. There were people who were arguing that uh, the revolution was uh, simply aimed at. Uh, introducing political democracy and uh, introducing free and fair elections, uh, whereas other people, uh, you know, were uh, extremely adamant about the fact that uh, this revolution had real social and economic depth 
and was aimed at introducing something more than procedural democracy, and that the outcome uh, of the uh, of this revolution was uh, was poised to uh, change the state's orientation towards social and economic rights, which is an orientation that has shifted and changed quite a bit uh, in uh, Mubarak's last decade in politics. Uh, sorry, in power uh, due to this process of economic mm -hmm. neoliberalization that was occurring. Uh, so um, I think a lot of things have changed since then uh, in the way that these conflicts have panned out. Uh, uh, obviously, there was a, mom a certain moment in time where the military was trying to appropriate uh, this revolution and claim that it defended the revolution, that this is a revolution that succeeded. Uh, the, re the uprising wouldn't have succeeded if it weren't for the fact that the military sided uh, mm -hmm. with the uprising, whereas other people would argue that the, the uprising succeeded uh, only because workers and labor sided uh, with uh, the protesters uh, in Tahrir Square mm -hmm. and other public squares in Egypt. So, um, whereas uh, I think we the conflict or the dynamics of that conflict over the history was taking on the form of appropriation and resistance to that appropriation and maybe attempts to make counterclaims about what this revolution was about, now it's taking the form of um, memory and denial. And uh, right now the military is no longer interested in saying that it was a meaningful part of this revolution. It's presenting, uh, it, it is almost trying to erase the memory of that revolution. On the one hand, it does want to erase the memory of that revolution because of the potential mobilization that it could inspire, but also because there are some very inconvenient tensions that the memory of that revolution brings up, which is the fact that on the one hand, uh, all of your current political allies or a big chunk of your current political allies are presenting this revolution as a conspiracy that uh, was orchestrated by foreign forces and by uh, the agents of uh, some foreign conspiracy in Egypt um, versus, uh, you know, your previous narrative that uh, you are the savior and champion of this revolution uh, versus uh, the images of military generals meeting with those uh, alleged agents uh, that are currently sitting in jail uh, and, and, and prison and languishing in the prisons of this military dictatorship. So um, this has definitely changed and shifted the orientation of the military. Towards it, is, it is awkward trying to commemorate and celebrate a revolution which you're simultaneously defaming and trying to delegitimize. Absolutely, and that ambiguity is really key. And, uh, and what's been very interesting is that President Sisi a few days ago you know, tried to come up with this conciliatory speech that tried to give, you know, lend lip service to the revolution, uh, you know, whereas beforehand he had been very silent about this question, about whether, you know, June 30th is uh, the only revolution that happened. Uh, uh, and uh, it, it was a response to counter the January 25th revolution versus other more convenient narratives for the for the military that uh, you know June th that presents June the thirtieth as a continuation or a correction right. uh, to January rescuing a revolution rescuing the revolution essentially so um, you know these are these are really really important um, important questions but obviously as scholars it shouldn't I mean the current moment shouldn't detract from the fact or or push us to overlook the fact that there were some really, really interesting conflicts that were happening over 
um, you know, b between 2011 and 2013, the coup of 2013, mm -hmm. uh, uh, about um, the specific details and interpretations of uh, the 18-day uprising from January 25th, 2011, until the ouster of uh, President Mubarak on January 11th. So, so for example, you know, the, the role of the Muslim Brotherhood as part of the revolution, that's always been one of the major things that has been argued about. You know, did they simply, were they part of the revolution from the beginning, as they liked to, as, as the brothers would suggest, or were they kind of like riding on the coattails of the revolution and hijacking it as the later discourse would, uh, would suggest? I mean, I remember that as being a major interpretive battle almost from the first day. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And this is exactly where I was actually trying to go with this um, with this conversation, which is the fact that, you know, you have, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't want to come down on one way or another, because that's not the purpose of the conversation. But what is really fascinating and interesting is the fact that, you know, you have a lot of uh, uh, allies of the Muslim Brotherhood and Muslim Brotherhood leaders who present uh, February 2nd, the Battle of the Camel specifically, mm -hmm. as the turning moment in the 18 days. and I've heard I, that from a lot of Muslim brothers over the years. Absolutely, because they would like to emphasize the fact that they took part in uh, defending the square against the thugs, the uh, alleged paid and thugs. And without that them, the square would have fallen. And without them, the square would have fallen. Uh, versus other people, you know, uh, a lot of uh, leftist activists and, uh, and, and, and advocates for... Um, uh, advocates for social and distributive justice uh, actually emphasize the fact uh, or make the claim that if it weren't for uh, the uh, labor unrest that happened in the last few days of the uprising, the uh, balance wouldn't have been tipped in favor of the protesters. Uh, and there we see a very you know, important and competing vi visions versus other uh, you know, uh, po politicians, uh, li liberal and leftist politicians who emphasize the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, you know, they were the last people in the square. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't take part in the square. They didn't take part in the, uh, in the um, occupation of Tahrir Square until the, uh, it was clear that the domestic security apparatus had, uh, had collapsed and the military started uh, intervening in politics, signaling that there was some change that was going to happen uh, and that they were the first to leave. Um, you know, they, so that is another additional narrative that actually um, that actually important in highlighting uh, these various uh, these various conflicts. Um, so uh, I think this is you know I think you know even though the current moment is not one of of competing narratives per se, but a moment of uh, a conflict that is uh, between an authority that's trying to silence the narratives of this revolution uh, and the memory of that revolution, uh, even though that's, it's no longer that, that battle of, of competing narratives are not, still no longer there, it doesn't mean that it's not an interesting line of inquiry to pursue. Well, how, you know, so I remember the, the, kind of the public argument over narrative uh, in the June 30th uh, being much more public and intense than the January 25th public arguments over the narrative. Um, in other words, the, the kind of the, the, the competing narratives that you're describing were certainly there and they became a central part of the politics which followed the revolution, whereas June 30th, right from the very first moment, you had this enormous polarization between these two competing narratives. And I, I'm curious, you know, it, how, how, would you, how would you compare those two different um, kind of moments in terms of the politics of narrative, the politics of construction, of, of, of knowledge? 
Well, certainly, I think the, um, I mean, there are certain similarities to between the January twenty fifth um, uprising and 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 the popular mobilization that happened on June thirtieth. I mean, I'm hesitant to, you know, I'm hesitant to agree with the narrative that tries to present this as something that was purely manufactured mm -hmm. by uh, the army and that it w weren't for the fact that the army and uh, and its various allies within the private business community and inside the media and uh, within the political community, if it weren't for them, this wouldn't have happened. I mean, I think this is an important part of the story that has to be told, but at the same time, uh, there was a genuine sense of opposition, growing opposition, popular opposition to the rule of uh, Mohammed Morsi, and perhaps it has, uh, you know, perhaps it has less to do with uh, what Morsi was doing inside of the, you know, or what the Muslim Brotherhood was doing inside of the constitution, mm -hmm. uh, constitution drafting chamber, but just as a, as, as a, by virtue of the fact that the Egyptian state altogether regardless of who's in the driver's seat, regardless of whether it's Hosni Mbarak or the SCAF or Morsi or Sisi, is facing a popular, uh, a popular challenge that is, um, that, is certainly, um, uh, that is certainly mobilizing people against it for a variety of different reasons. So, um, you know, going back to your question, I think there are similarities in the sense that there was this, um, the military was able to capitalize on both uh, sources of mobilization, and uh, in some cases, I think the the the, the outcome of both of these episodes, uh, you know, J January twenty fifth or the eighteen day uprising, resulting in a transition that was purely managed by the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces to uh, versus uh, you know June thirtieth, uh, two thousand and thirteen. Uh, amounting to a military coup and a subsequent transition that was once again not mm -hmm. only managed by the military but generating what is uh, obviously a horrible and uh, and much more brutal uh, military uh, dictatorship. I think there are certain similarities in, in trajectories. Um, but again, I mean, one thing that cannot be, um, you know, that cannot be denied is, is the fact that uh, the true colors of uh, the um, the outcome mm -hmm. that we had on June 30th was very quickly descended into violence, into mm -hmm. uh, a very, you know, one of the unprecedented, an unprecedented massacre right. uh, in in August uh, 2013, the Rabah al-Adawiyah massacre is definitely something that makes those two events qualitatively different, especially from a normative uh, point of view. So be before we finish, I, I want to bring this back to the uh, the poems conversations really want to you know focus on the the academic, the scholarly aspect of this. And I think it's a really interesting question is on the one hand, you have Egyptians uh, such as yourself who are deeply embedded within these polarized discourses and trying to make sense of their own history. How does the academic, how does the scholar, whether political scientist or historian, adjudicate between these competing narratives? How, how do you know? Or how do you decide which points to emphasize, which details to bring forward? What would you suggest? Uh, at least my, the way I personally deal with it is the fact that, you know, I, I, my point of departure isn't that there is one correct narrative. Uh, but my point of departure is that there are competing narratives and maybe these competing narratives should be um, the sort of complexity that, us as a community of scholar have to convey uh, to um, 
you know, whether in the university setting or in a, in, in, a, in a public setting, you know, these are complexities that we have to present. Not just to show people that the world is complicated, but to reflect on the current politics that are happening right now. Why is it, you know, instead of posing the question of what happened in, during the 18 days, uh, but why is it that the question of the Battle of the Camels is so contentious? Why is it that the question of labor, uh, the labor mobilization and the role it played is so contentious and so fraught? And I think this is one strategy we can use in order to convey these complexities um, while at the same time taking the discussion towards, uh, I think, a fruitful direction instead of uh, trying to, you know, present people with a correct narrative, uh, which people are, can still obviously adjudicate between them, but at least even if we can't adjudicate between these narratives, maybe we should convey sufficient complexity where people can actually, uh, you know, make that call if they, um, if they, if they choose to. All right, great. Well, thank you, Hasham Salem of Stanford University. Uh, thanks for joining us in the Poll Maps conversation. Thank you, Mark.